0: Creative Collisions with Second Home. Hello and welcome to Creative Collisions, a new podcast from Second Home, a social business dedicated to promoting creativity and entrepreneurship in cities around the world. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the introduction. Um, I am, in fact, Rihanna Walcott. (laughs) I'm a PhD student at King's College London. And my research is um, broadly on digital communities and more, in a more focused way, I look at race and social media. And in particular, I look at how black people use tech, basically, that's uh, in a nutshell kind of what I'm doing. And um, so I've, this is, uh, I've sort of pivoted lately as well to try and you know make sure some of this work is forward-facing outreach kind of work um, because this is the kind of stuff that I definitely speak to my my students about when I'm doing when I'm you know running seminars, but maybe not perhaps reaching the communities that it should be like you know like we are in this space um, somewhere like Second Home where I'm sure a lot of you know startups and marketing companies are working out of. So um, without knowing who is in the audience, I still imagine that a lot of this will be relevant to you guys. And if I would just like to say that if you have any sort of questions or comments or I'm going too fast or anything like that, please do feel free to interrupt me as we go. Um, There'll be time for questions at the end, but um, I'm more than happy to spend more time talking about whatever about this interests you. Okay, so all of that aside, The dog's name's Levi, by the way. Yes. Um, so, uh, this tweet um, by Joel, the editor, um, being a part of Black Twitter is one of the greatest honours of my life. The constant entertainment is sensational. So, that tweet um, really kind of encapsulates a lot of the work that I do. I exist on Twitter all the time. I'm incredibly online. And um, I have the privilege of being able to study and talk about it. So... Um, you know, I think that that's like a very good grounding to understand the kind of work I'm doing that very much centers the community who uses this space, centers the black people who are existing and working and playing on Twitter, and thinking about what it is about that space that allows us to thrive or suffer <laughs> just online. <clears throat> so my thesis is called A Tweet at the Table, and I crowdsource the title and um, I'm widely looking at black communities on social media, but more importantly focusing on black women and not black people. And this is a little section, a little excerpt from my thesis. In black British digital networks, an ever-changing hybridized way of speaking has emerged that synthesizes aspects of black dialects from across the diaspora. This language is used both as a part of a performance of self and to signal belonging to a black group identity as linguistic choices are a way that online actors are able to curate their narratives of self-representation. So in a nutshell, the way that we speak online, the things that we do online, are all about performing self and performing belonging to a certain community. And the community that I'm focusing on in this case is the black community online. This isn't just happening on Twitter, of course, it's happening on you know various social media networks, I'm sure, very aware of it. So the reason why I bring this up today is because I'm, you know, I'm planning to like have us think about these different networks, these spaces that they exist in, the reasons for their existing, these little community bubbles that we all find ourselves in on the internet, and the ways in which they are marketed to, surveilled by not just um, you know marketing companies and surveillance capitalism, but also the ways that we surveil each other you know, peer-to-peer surveillance as well as state surveillance, capitalist surveillance, you know, when we sell to, when we become the product. All of these different types of surveillance are contingent on us, on us being part of these different community spaces and us existing online in the way that we do. So, um, you'll probably, you'll definitely recognise this video, which is... um, Pretty much, I think probably the most famous example of some targeted media going wrong in the last few years. You know, so this is uh, like a really iconic example of surveillance capitalism and marketing gone very, very wrong. The uproar to that Pepsi advert, I'm sure we all remember. And um, I think a really good example of when um, you know what sorts of things we should be looking out for. How can communities be very Marketed to in a way that's very cynical, in a way that misses the point. What happens when we don't have the right people in the room? (laughs) What happens when we don't have the sense that God gave us? You know what I mean? Like, it's the sort of thing where, you know, you can pick apart all the moments of that advertisement um, and sort of down to the little smirk that, oh, Pepsi, what can you do? (laughs) All those rascals, those protesters, you know, like every bit of that is uncomfortable and caused a lot of discomfort. A lot of discomfort online because of course it speaks to you know it was this very it was protest in a way that was meaningless It's just oh there's a protest and there's a um, some state body force and we've solved it by you know having a sing and a dance and drinking a Pepsi together Capitalism has come in to save the day, which is of course very far from the kind of message that the majority of you know, Like obviously this model of Black Lives Matter protests, like that's very far from the kind of conversation that we're actually having. Um, and the backlash was awful, of course. Um, she had to make a very weakly apology. Uh, Pepsi made a little bit of a weak apology. It all, went, it all went really wrong. Um, and I really just want to sort of take this back to this idea of what this is and surveillance and surveillance capitalism. So this term was coined by Shoshana Zuboff, and the variant is called, so this, this um, I've mentioned surveillance capitalism already, and it works by providing free services that billions of people use, enabling the providers of those services to monitor the behaviour of those in detail. So... Surveillance capitalism turns human experience into the raw material that we then market. We become the product, we are the people the product is sold to, so we are both the product and also what the people that are being marketed to. We are surveilling each other, that's the nature of social media, but we are also being surveilled by um, marketing companies, that's the condition of usage, right? Um, I think also what's really important here is that this has created a brand new kind of marketplace Ooh, echoing. and these are behavioural futures markets that um, Shoshana Zuboff has um, coined there. And um, of course the way that this works is that we are having, you know, our past, our present, our future behaviours are being predicted and then sold to different companies that will then benefit from these predictions. So I'd like to make the connection here between state and capitalist surveillance, and think about the ways in which different groups, marginalized groups in particular on the internet, might not be too pleased about this kind of um, surveillance. So there are lovely ways in which surveillance capitalism makes our lives a lot easier. In one of my classes, a student brought up um, cookies, for instance, Um, just like nice helpful useful thing you know you can decline or accept cookies on your phone and one of the things that that does is if you are online shopping the you know the way that this functions is that if you didn't enable cookies every time you change the page you the stuff that was in your basket would disappear right so there are really useful ways that these are just making our lives easier perhaps having targeted marketing is useful to you. When I got a dog, I got, you know, when I was a new dog owner, all of my stuff being advertised to me was all the stuff for the new dogs, that was really helpful because I didn't know what I was doing. There are lots of ways in which this surveillance can be, can feel really harmless. But there are also, of course, lots of ways where this causes very clear harm to marginalised communities in particular. So we can make the connection between state and and capitalist surveillance and, um, the majority of the data that is being used by marketing companies is also being sold to the government. So it's not, um, these two things are not disconnected. The surveillance of one goes hand-in-hand hand with the other. And um, that means that we are separated into two groups, the watchers and the watched, and that has massive consequences for our democracy. We're all very familiar with things like uh, what happened with Cambridge Analytica, in terms of Brexit, in terms of Donald Trump's, um, well, in terms of the 2016 elections. I hope we are, otherwise I've just steamrolled, yes. I mean, here we are. So, so, you know, there are ways in which our behaviors online are being manipulated uh, against us and also being used to impede um, civic processes. Uh, All of these things are really important and tied together, and we can't, you know, disconnect ourselves from participating in that kind of work as well. So, I also really love this quote down here. What one sees instead is a colonizing ruthlessness of which John D Rockefeller would have been proud. First of all, there was the arrogant appropriation of user's behavioral data, viewed as a free resource, there for the taking. Then the use of patented methods to extract or infer data, even when users had explicitly denied permission. Followed by the use of technologies that were opaque by design and fostered user ignorance. So, one of the things that I ask in my classes is who reads the terms and conditions? And in what ways are long terms and conditions in the way that they exist, in what ways are they designed and planned so that we don't read them? You know, it would be very easy to have them be things that you had to, you know, small digestible pieces that you had to click through each bit. It wouldn't be hard. To make those things something that we read and cared about, that's deliberately planned so that people can get around um, our uses of data and use them in ways that you know that they wish to. So, I want to take us back to that Pepsi advert and, in general, some of the things that happen when um, we're being surveilled in a way that isn't how do I put it, where people aren't you know being thoughtful. About the groups that they're looking at, and perhaps not getting the fuller picture, perhaps aren't having, um, aren't speaking to anyone that they're watching, and you know getting things wrong. So this is um, some research, uh, some research by a friend of mine, Dr. Francesca Sabant on woke washing, and the research signals how brands misuse issues concerning commercialised notions of feminism, equality, and Black social justice activism in particular as part of marketing that then flattens and reframes liberationist politics whilst upholding the neoliberal idea that achievement and social change requires individual ambition and consumption rather than structural shifts and resistance bit meaty so the idea that we are um you know being force-fed or fed back very watered down notions of what black feminism you know racial activism, racial justice looks like. All you have to look at is the reaction to George Floyd's murder and the way that um, brands have since co-opted the Black Lives Matter movement to then just sell things, right? So um, it's the idea that that then flattens these nuanced and rich politics into something that individuals can do something about when actually we're talking about systems of change here. And what she found was that marketing simultaneously enables the visibility and erasure of intersectional feminism, which is almost a meaningless term now. No one really uses it in the way that it was meant to be used, and black social justice activist issues with the use of key racialized and gendered subject positions. So, woke washing in a sense that we are um, that it is trendy to be woke that. Um, Paying lip service to particularly um, gendered issues or racialized issues, or you know, thinking about um, you know the way that Pride works every year and become you know everyone changes their stuff to a rainbow for a month and then you know we pack away the gays after that. You know it's that kind of <laughs> this this annual woke washing that we all participate in and are in some ways complicit in. So, I think a really good example of this is the black square issue. So, uh, this is L'Oreal Paris's black square on Instagram for Blackout Tuesday. And um, you can see in the comments that some people are rightfully calling them out on it. Boycott L'Oreal for Monroe. Great to hear that you support Black Lives Matter. When are you going to stop selling skin-lightening products that create encourage and profit from colorism and racism? Stay on their neck, Liv. That would be great. So <laughs> I think that, um, you know, in terms of this washing here, in a later deleted Instagram post, Bergdorf rightfully called this out. You dropped me from a campaign in 2017 and threw me to the wolves for speaking out about racism and white supremacy with no duty of care, without a second thought. And in the years since this campaign, the disconnect between what brands say and then what they do. So, you know, putting up a black square means you don't have to do anything else. We've got it. I remember when Uber had, um, oh, me and my friend were spitting because we were using Uber and we, it was like Black History Month, I think it was last year. And the Uber icon changed to little pentacle icons and that was it. it was like, yeah there's black history, and uh, that the end of it, you know, like, what, what is the use of that other than performative activism, what, other than whitewashing? What, what did that do? What tangible stuff did that actually do for the black community? So, you know, it's very obvious, and it's embarrassing. I think what's really important here is that this doesn't just happen, and people go, oh, well, like, there is, like, often a very, like, massive backlash, like a very public-facing backlash, and of course, we can say that that um, is also part of a marketing technique where you know the backlash is still visibility. That's not um, necessarily something that is not uh, manufactured, manufactured outrage to sell things. Also, but um, I don't know. I think it's interesting for us to think about and think about other ways that we could do marketing without relying on performative outrage. So I wanted to just like come back to. The what what's um, issue and think about Blackout Tuesday and the unintended impacts of this. So Blackout Tuesday was meant to be uh, an attempt by two music insiders to pause business as usual across the music industry. Um, and you know brands including Spotify and Apple and TikTok and lots of record companies. You know uh, it was supposed to be a hashtag. The show must be paused. That then became Blackout Tuesday and it was the brainchild i think it's important to mention of two black women who work in music marketing jamila thomas and brianna um, aguilar so um, this you know quickly took off took speed and the there was a sea of black boxes across instagram and lots of other platforms and um then it changed It wasn't Blackout Tuesday anymore and people were posting black squares on their Instagram. It moved from being something that was about specifically the music industry pausing um, activity and turned into a way for individuals to express their own individual, I don't know, care about racism and um, those black squares, people started hashtagging Black Lives Matter and I think it's important to mention the unintended impact of doing that, because whilst this at one point had the hashtag of um, just said Blackout Tuesday, and then before that it was um, the show must be paused. Now it was attached to Black Lives Matter, and therefore these black squares then flooded the Black Lives Matter hashtag, which you know was used was being used at the time to one, spread awareness, but also to like, promote fundraisers and promote GoFundMes for the victims of police brutality and do actual useful things and disseminate information. And instead, it was drowned by all um, of these black squares, which I think is gorgeously symbolic. <laughs> the black squares actually ruined some other good work going on and um i kind of want to think about that and the way that virality and hashtags and these kinds of movements and things that we do um, are a type of hacking you know by flooding different spaces and by flooding the information that we receive and by you know covering up useful information and you know by changing the way that people look at and talk about things that is hacking the space and also the Black Lives Matter hashtag in the first place is um, a hacking of the space. It collates information in a way so that a community can find each other. So what happens when you've got the reverse happening? A space that was carved out by a community for a specific purpose is then being overrun by um, something unintended, something perhaps good-natured, but that has had the exact opposite effect. This has... Um, This also is a great example of what happens when you know these wonderful comments here. What happens when brands try to participate in activism in a way that is performative? What happens to the politics of authenticity? Who are we comfortable hearing these kinds of messages from, and who do we not want to hear it from at all? I don't have the link here. I was trying to find it earlier, but I saw um, a friend of mine gave a talk, and it was amazing because it was about the Popeye's chicken sandwich and when Chick-fil-A brought out something similar and there's a song about how there's no Chick-fil-A in the hood (laughs) and when um, Chick-fil-A and Popeye's and all of the different chicken vendors were um, posting about their different chicken sandwiches there was, you know, very different reactions to them the Popeye's chicken sandwich was really popular because that is, you know, that is a in America, that is a very, um black brand. It's a brand that has consistently, you know, been in black neighborhoods, consistently engaged with black people. So then when Chick-fil-A, which is, you know, known, very Christian, sort of white, um, queer phobic brand, started posting the chicken sandwich, you know, continuing to the chicken sandwich discourse. I can't believe I'm saying this. <laughs> chicken sandwich discourse. Um, you know, when that started happening, people were you know, uncomfortable with it. They were seen as inauthentic. There's no chick fil a in the hood, you see? So I think that's really important to understand that, if, you know, whitewashing washing doesn't always work. Um, people, will, people will see through it, and particularly the communities that you are perhaps trying to reach in particular will find it most disgusting of all. Right, so shadow banning and algorithmic bias. This is what I promised to talk about. So um, I want to, Think about how this sort of targeting market targeted marketing can adversely impact communities, but also how social media platforms curate this conversation themselves. So whilst people might be intending to use social media for different means or for you know personal personal reasons, for you know demonstrating your identity, speaking with different people, whatever you might be intending to use it for. The platforms themselves also have a hand in mediating your access to it and mediating the conversations that happen on it. So I've got this example here, um, Naomi Nicholas Williams, and um, I'm just gonna read it out. Speaking to The Observer over the summer, Nicholas Williams and photographer Alexandra Cameron told of how photos from their confidence shoot were repeatedly deleted and taken down with warnings that their accounts which have more than 115,000 followers between them, could be closed down. The controversy caused fans to protest and post pictures of the model en masse under the hashtag I want to see Naomi. The photo sharing app owned by Facebook was accused of hypocrisy and racism in allowing an abundance of photos of semi-naked skinny white women on its feeds, but deleting those posted by black women in similar poses. Nicholas Williams said she was shocked that a fat black woman celebrating her body is banned. I want to promote self-love and inclusivity because that's how I feel and how I want other women like me to feel. So that I think is a perfect example of how social media platforms and their invisibilized practices of moderating content and who is their ideal user, who they are marketing themselves as being for and who they market their platforms of, consisting of, can differ from our like, real-life actual presentations. So, you know, mon- monopolistic global companies like Instagram in this case, Facebook and Twitter, play a very active role in shaping and generating the conversation on their sites. Um, the way that these platforms moderate that content is very much obscured from us. Um, Everything we know about how Instagram functions in particular is guesswork, even for social media experts. Um, In the example I use here, plus size black model, Naomi Nicholas-Williams, is the subject of this social media campaign. Um, Many Instagram users are aware of how algorithms might limit the reach of their posts, but not how or why. So, thinking about shadow banning. In August 2020, journalist Paula Akpan investigated the impacts of shadow banning and the negative consequences it has for minoritized users specifically. Shadow banning affects content Instagram identifies as borderline but not in direct uh, violation of community guidelines. So what uh, qualifies as borderline is unclear to us all but in practice you can find that minority users are suffering disproportionately of course Um, The digital newsletter Salty interviewed its user base in October 2019 and found that of 118 participants surveyed, many of the respondents identified as LGBTQIA+, people of colour, plus-sized and sex workers or educators. So those users experienced friction with the platform in some form, so they might have had content taken down, profiles and pages disabled and or rejected advertisements. So, we can see how communities, marginalized communities in particular, are having their content, you know, are losing money, losing uh, visibility because their content is deemed by the platform itself without real explanation as to why as like sort of unsuitable or borderline, as they say. So, fat users are more likely to have content that shows skin labeled as inappropriate nudity. Black bodies are flagged as sexually suggestive content more often than white ones are, and famously men's nipples are allowed where women's fins tread. ACAN highlights the racial bias that allows these unfair practices to flourish, as despite attempting to make neutral systems, programmers and technical designers do not exist in vacuum. They live and work in a society that has always understood the bodies of black people through constructs established under colonialism, including the idea that black people are morally lax and present themselves as sexually aggressive. So it's really apparent here that there needs to be more clarification around these policies and the functioning of algorithms in general. these sorts of information these bits of these kinds of information needs to be made publicly accessible so we can understand how they are being used and in what way and who is being disproportionately um, uh, marginalized so that we can critique and improve them. But unfortunately, there are no real regulations in place. And I've written an article about this, that I'll share later, the, the laws have not really caught up to the way that social media functions. So there's no real regulations that demand that we know about this kind of information to ensure that algorithms created by tech giants are fit for purpose. Platforms have a hard time making sense of the different needs and experiences of the demographics using their spaces, and then algorithmic bias further complicates this. There's no legal obligation for them to reveal how they moderate content. So, currently, the users who are, you know, managing and overcoming these tech inequalities, the most vulnerable just try to protect each other, um, as we always have done. So, closed groups, community pages, community spaces, provide spaces for connected networks to form around shared experience or shared communities, and participate in making their own sort of community-based rules. So, I'm sure you'll have seen that, I remember when Instagram sort of changed its um, landing page, a few times ago, (laughs) and people were posting little um, infographics saying, "Okay, um, a share is more valuable than a like, a bookmark is more valuable than a share. Um, You know, this is how you can make sure that your favourite content producers remain visible through shadow banning. You know, there are communities that are aware of the way these things work and that um, figure out their own ways of keeping their content relevant and visible. Um, so, a really good example I've got is that black activist pages might moderate their language to ensure that their work isn't um, shadow banned or taken down. So, instead of writing white, you know, as in talking about white people, W H I T E, you might spell it Y T or um, hashtag FFFF, you know, like the hex code for, uh, for brilliant white. Or, you know my personal favorite is saying "hueless." you know all of these ways of talking around whiteness that means that you aren't officially using the word white and therefore cannot be surveilled and cannot be punished for the kind of words you're using so um, you know this is a way of getting around a platform that doesn't accommodate the nuances of hierarch- hierarchical and racialized oppression so Here's an example, I don't know if anyone's familiar with this example, but um, this happened in September 2020. And someone posted these two pictures. Um, It was like two images, one with Mitch McConnell at the top and one with Obama at the bottom and vice versa. And it says here, trying a horrible experiment, which will the present algorithm pick, Mitch McConnell or Barack Obama? And both times, no matter, you know, which way, Focused on Mitch, and then people were going, oh, maybe it's because he's got a red tie on, and the algorithm's picking the red tie. So they photoshopped the blue tie in the same event. I thought this was a really great example. Then people were trying it again with different, you know, different variations. You've got this one here where there's like this one here where there were two white men and the black guy in the middle, black guy at the top, white guy at the bottom, vice versa. Two black guys, white guys in the middle, every time it picked the white man to be the header. And I thought this was so interesting because users were attempting their own variations of this. They were noticing a problem and you know giving it doing this experiment with stock photos. And um, it got so much interest, it got so much traction that on October first, Twitter support actually released an update acknowledging the problem and elaborating on how they test for bias in their system. And then promising to rely less on auto cropping and to give users choices on how images appear in tweets in the future. So this like outrage actually did something. Shock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, you know I think that this also is a really useful way of thinking about it. Someone said here the algorithm is based on targeting parts of the image with the greatest brightness and color density. If you're insinuating it's designed to be racist, you're wrong. And of course that doesn't matter. The fact that it wasn't intended to be racist doesn't doesn't make any difference to the outcome. Something does not to be designed to be racist, to be racist. The kinds of choices that we make in terms of the way that we use tech and what we focus on, and what kind of communities we center, it, you know, it, it reflects our own offline biases. It reflects the state of the world that we're in. It's not about a deliberate choice to do something that is racist. We have to work consciously to make sure that the way that we engage with tech is deliberately anti-racist. So this is a really crucial point to bear in mind when we're thinking about algorithmic bias and our own um, tech practices. I would like to just like finish off by saying that surveillance so, capitalism as an open... is an overwhelmingly ambivalent tool here. It has the capacity both to advance progressive politics in the way that we use um, hashtags like Black Lives Matter to disrupt conversations and to. Make sure that you know to, to place all of our conversations in one easily accessible place, but it can also be massively exploitative when we get things wrong, when we're looking in the wrong places, and when we're not talking to um, the right people. Okay, that's that's all for me. I have got, um, if anyone's interested in any of the references that I mentioned, they are here. So if you want to take a picture of that, if anyone cares, <laughs> please do. And, um, yeah, I'm now open to questions. I hope I didn't go on for too long. Thank you so much. Yeah. Ah. <coughs>